And when I was working at this point back in Massachusetts, we came up for our annual evaluation and potential raises. And I was told by the then superintendent that no, I could only get X because one of my compatriots who happened to be male could get Y. And I said, why? And said, well, he's the head of a household. And I looked at him and I said, well, what the hell do you think I am? (laughs) I was not only supporting myself, but I was supporting a husband who was a student and I was the only incomer. Welcome to the Persistence You podcast with Lisbeth, and that's you as in university. But we're much more of a community here. I'm your host, Lisbeth Meredith, author, speaker, and online teacher. Each week, I'll be delivering stories from amazing survivors and strivers, all threaded together with a dose of persistence. So glad you're listening. Heather Flynn, thank you so much for being on my podcast. I mentioned this before, but if someone's just listening, didn't hear last week's episode, I wanted to mention that on Women's History Month, thinking of at least three women that have changed our world and inspired and influenced us, and then letting them know is important. And Heather, you are my dear friend, but first you were my inspiration the executive director at the women's shelter that I worked at, Abused Women's Aid in Crisis. I talked last week about the fact that you were, you know, a mayoral candidate on the school board, uh, on the city assembly in Alaska. But just as a human, someone who doesn't believe in coloring in the lines, and you do believe in positive change, especially as it relates to women and children. So thank you for being here all the way from, at the moment, Mexico. And Thank you, Liz. Tell me a little bit about when you were a kid, Heather, when you were a child, what kind of things did you witness? Or is there a certain memory memory, or couple of memories that made you think, I'm going to change these rules. I'm going to create equity for women. Well, your questions made me think about this a bit because normally I would go instantly to my public service school board and assembly and changes that I made there. But then you made me think, well, what caused that? When I was a really little kid, like six years old, um, I got polio. That's back before you had vaccines and things like that. And I had to learn to walk and function again. But I was always what would then be called a tomboy. I could run faster and because the bottom part of my body didn't work very well, the top part got very strong. I got shoulders, you know, like the Green Bay Packers. So I could do more chin-ups than anyone else. Um, And that made me want to be the head of the class. Uh, But the boys always were. And I maintained, and to this day maintain, something I'll tell you about with respect to immunizations uh, later, but it maintained my competitiveness of both physical strength and uh, some academic strength as well. And the academic strength of it kind of came when I was in the fourth grade. I had a magnificent teacher, Grace Blanchard, now deceased. Um, And I don't know, they were giving those tests that they gave in those days, Stanford or whatever. And I finished my lessons quickly so I could run outside and play at recess. 
and she made me stay after school. And she did what I think you were absolutely prohibited from doing in those days. And she showed me my test scores. And you weren't supposed to do that. And she said, do you know what this means? And I probably made some smart ass crack like, yeah, I'm a smart kid. And she got very serious. And she said, you know what this means. You can do absolutely anything you want. Now, that didn't mean anything to me really then. But this woman knew more about my family than I did. She knew my family was coming apart. My father was a serious alcoholic. Um, There were just a lot of things that didn't work very well in my family. And my family did, in fact, come completely apart a couple of years after that. And the family, my mother and my sister and I had to move and all that sort of stuff. But that remained with me. Grace Blanchard, my fourth grade teacher, she was actually my second and fourth grade teacher, and told me, you can do anything. And it was, it was that that got me to go to college, because by that time I had a stepfather who was, oh, mean, dreadful SOB, who basically said, you want to go to college, pay for it yourself? And I did. And it was hard. But I think the other thing, divorce in a small town in Southern Oregon was a, was made made as kind of a social pariah. And I do know, I mean, I think to this day, and by the way, I'm going to get 80 pretty quick. You know that. You've got birthdays coming. Your 80th Um, birthday. Yippee. (laughs) I remember 50. Um, I think that I have always felt, I've always had a a bit of an attitude of exclusion and abandonment. And that's, you know, if I've got a, an anxiety level left, that's it, uh, of not being included, of not being allowed to join whatever. And, and, you know, I've got several examples of that throughout my life, but that's not very important. Um, one of the ways I guess you overcome that is I've run for public office five times, and I've been successful four of those times. And that's a great inclusion to get. So I just thought about that for the first time. Thank you for reminding me. Okay, <laughs> ask me some more questions because otherwise I'll just rattle off. Or, or do you want me to talk about uh, the you policy? Know, I love that you brought up the teacher that inspired you and told you that message, which was a really important one that you could do anything. But the truth is, in a world in which you didn't have access to so many things, in theory, you could do anything if you lived in a different world. And, you know, I mean, women haven't always had the right to vote, the right to do sports, to get an education, to inherit all of the things. So when you look back on your career after her amazing words, you went to college. And I remember you talking about waitressing while you were in college and doing different things. What do you think career-wise is the most you know, of course, you're proud of raising a beautiful family, but what is the most important thing thing that you accomplished or worked on in your history? And you and I talked a little bit about that, but what would you say it is? And explain it to the listeners, if you would. At my age, 
when you came out of college, you had two choices. You could be a nurse or a teacher. I don't do bodily fluids. So, of course, I became a teacher. And when I was working at this point back in Massachusetts, we came up for our annual evaluation and potential raises. And I was told by the then superintendent that, no, I could only get X because one of my compatriots, who happened to be male, could get Y. And I said, why? And said, well, he's the head of a household. And I looked at him and I said, well, what the hell do you think I am? I was not only supporting myself, but I was supporting a husband who was a student and I was the only incomer. So fast forward, went to Anchorage some years later, went on the school board. This was shortly after Title IX passed. Now, for those of you who don't know what that is, it basically said equality in education for girls as well as boys. I got the opportunity to implement Title IX in the Anchorage School District. And that meant we were going to have science classes that were open to girls. We were going to have athletics that were open for girls. And the way I did it, I'll, I'll be very clear about this. If there's something that's important, you give it resources. If you want to kill it, that's what you do. You take the resources away. I don't know quite how I became a budget expert, but I am. I know money. And I could tell you every line item of millions and millions and millions of dollars in budgets. And if the boys, and I remember this one really clearly, and the East High School came in and they absolutely had to have a new jacuzzi in the boys' gym because theirs was broken or old or something. And I said, well, is there a jacuzzi in the girls' gym? Well, no. And I said, well, when there is, there's one in the girls' gym, then come back and talk to me about the boys' gym. But no, until you make it equal, you're not getting it. And if I look at that, that was 40 years ago, 50 years ago, a long time ago. You look at today, women and girls are equally represented not as equal as they should be, but in business, in athletics, in the law, in medicine. More women are coming out of college today than men. More women are coming out of medical school today than men. Sadly, that tends to be in the professions, and we still are not doing very well to value girls and women in lower economic levels. If you look at who works as housekeepers, who works as nurses' aides, who works in nursing homes, who works in childcare, it is still women and it is low-paid women and it's undervalued. And frankly, that's true in our country. It's true all over the world. And I think we just have to keep pushing at that. And the key, in my opinion, is education. I think when girls get education, they get inspired and they move up. And it's healthy for it's healthy for all of us. I would give one caveat here because I'm old enough. Going back into the 70s when it was the women's movement, 
And believe me, I never burned a bra. They are much too expensive. <laughs> but I think one of the flaws, one of the mistakes that we made was we didn't bring men along with us. Didn't help them to understand the value of equality and equal opportunity. And so it developed a backlash. And I think that backlash is not only there now, it is growing and sadly being promoted um, by sometimes religious conservatives and sometimes political conservatives. I mean, you don't have to look very far to see places where women and girls are less valued uh, in all walks. So Title IX and the implementation of it was critical. Taking one more step, because it's another one that I got to do, and again, using the budget. Well, using the budget and, shall we say, force of my personality occasionally, was a public law, 94-142, which nobody would know at my number, but it was basically education for the disabled. As a child, I never saw a disabled classmate, except one kid in the fourth grade, I broke his arm when we were playing out of the playground. I never saw a anyone disabled. If you had a disabled child, they were warehoused somewhere or sent off to the state institution. You just never saw them. Today, I mean, I think about the changes. My children and grandchildren have never been in a social or educational or even athletic environment that did not include disabled children and adults. Today, it, I won't say that the disabled are fully integrated. They are definitely not. But I think we are much more sensitive to people who are differently abled than we are. Someone used the comment to me the other day, oh, we're only currently abled. <laughs> the time may well come when, well, I have to wear reading glasses now. Um, I still have good hearing, sometimes too much. Uh, I can still walk and chew gum simultaneously. Um, but I know there are many who, whether it's age or whether it's disability or whether it's opportunity, simply cannot do the things that many of us are able to do because they have physical or mental disabilities that restrict them in some way. And I think having greater understanding of disability and greater opportunities for those who are disabled um, is a huge step forward for humanity. Uh, and that I've had an opportunity to enhance those opportunities is good, I think. I think that's beautiful. I do. I think that's fantastic. And just that sense of inclusion for people who experience disabilities is so important because then we do get to work alongside people with different capacities. And we have that reminder that we are 
maybe not disabled today, but at some point in our lifetimes, all of us will experience some degree of disability before we die. Um, It is very unusual that somebody wouldn't unless they suddenly were struck by a car at the age of eight or something like that, and they'd passed. Outside of that, most of us will have moments where we need reasonable accommodation. And so that's really something to be proud of. The world has, you know, we've, the world has changed a lot and it can certainly stand for more changes for, uh, you know, that we can celebrate in Women's History Month. But I love that you were a big part of making certainly my life better, but so many lives better by coloring outside of the lines and saying, this is the world I inherited and it can be enhanced and I'll be part of doing it. Liz, let me then come back to you your experience and our shared experience. Because I was, I started as a teacher, I ended up being an administrator, not a school administrator, an administrator of, as it turned out, three nonprofit organizations. And people would ask me about what I did for a way, abuse, women's aid in crisis, the, the shelter where you worked. Mm-hmm. Um, I tell people, I am not a psychologist. I'm not a social worker. I'm not a counselor. My job is to raise the resources so that I can hire people who know what they're doing to help the enormous need that we had in our community, in our state, and frankly, throughout the world. I certainly was in great sympathy and pretty knowledgeable about abuse And the cycle of violence, whether it's physical violence or psychological violence or economic violence, I learned a lot along the way. But once again, it was putting my, frankly, fundraising skills to work and also building trust. That's what made awake work, at least for me, under my direction, was people in the community that I went to and said, support this critical issue. They trusted me and they trusted the organization to do the critical job that needed to be done for women and children and developing relationships that enabled that to work. I knew the superintendent of schools, Carol Como, now long retired. And when we had a family that was on the run from a different state, you know, we had rules. The rules were you could not enroll a child in school who had been in another school without having the records from that other school come forward. Well, if you've got a family on on the run for their lives, you're not going to present gee, this family came from X school district in another state. So I'd call Carol, and very quietly, we just abandoned the rules. And the the rule was, say nothing. And we saved the lives of women and children by hiding them from their abusers. We used to say Alaska was an end-of-the-road place. Well, in some ways, it still is. Yes. 
It was a place you could escape from your abuser. Well, these days, it's even harder. It's so hard to get away because, well, certainly social media, but sometimes, too, the systems work against women and children. Yes. Whether it's police reports or whether it's school districts or, you know, what are, I'm not saying it's intentional. It's just that the system doesn't always have the tools to keep people safe. And that's certainly we're dealing with abused women and children, but there is a broader spectrum of people who need protection from the systems and the systems either don't know how to protect them or have chosen not to. And I think that's why we have to be ever vigilant that the systems adjust to protect those who are vulnerable, those who are less able than you and I may be to effectively get away. And not just get away. I think of you, Liz, and frankly, hundreds of others who have survived but go on to thrive. And it's that step from just surviving. In many respects, I survived the divorce of my parents. I survived a really rotten, horrible step-parent. I survived a very abusive marriage. But I'm not going to, I do not have to dwell in that survivor mode. I'm a thriver. And my role in the world, frankly, is to help other people not just strive, not just survive, but strive. And keep at it. I love it. And tell me, speaking of uh, striving, so you brought it up. I wouldn't have brought it up if you hadn't, but you're going to be 80. Where yep. will you be? I'm not going to list the month, but where will you, what will you be doing on your 80th birthday? Oh, probably eating cake and ice cream. Actually for my 80th birthday, I am going to hike the Camino. Yes, Portugal. by yourself. By myself. I'm going to do it. Not with very much of a backpack because I don't do heavy back. And, you know, let's be honest. I am not going to sleep on the ground or in a hostel. I'm going to sleep in the inns. I'm going to take a shower every night. Uh, yeah. I mean, I'm going to do this like an 80 year old and I'm not going to do it until the end of September. I'm going to right. take about, I'm going to take about 10 days to do 200 miles. Uh, but I just want to do it because I can. After my husband was killed, I took a trip by myself just got in the car, stayed off the interstates, and I went east and south and back north mm-hmm. and finally west again. And I did that for, I don't know, about six weeks, stopping to see people I knew, some of whom I knew I would never see again. And as it turned out, I didn't. But to see if I could just travel by myself and not go nuts. And it occurred to me then And it is now. In a very real way, I have spent the vast majority of my life 
alone, physically alone, emotionally alone. And you know what? I've not just adjusted to that, but I have thrived. A friend here in Manzanillo, where I am, she's from Iowa. And about, I don't know, six or eight years ago, she said to me, Heather, I think you're much happier when you're alone. And as much as I love being around other people, and I am, you know, I'm Liz, you've known me for a long time. I thrive in a crowd. Um, I work a crowd well. But the fact of the matter is, I'm a very private person. I know. You don't believe that, but I really am. No, I do. And um, I have not just adjusted to being alone, but I'm loving it. Now, Good. I can look beyond your beautiful brown eyes and see the Pacific Ocean. And I can't tell you how happy that makes me. Oh, I'll bet. I just wanted to clarify that the husband that died was different than the abusive marriage. That oh, was yeah. an ideal. It was a wonderful husband. Well, I hope you'll clarify more than that. <laughs> well, I, I don't know how many listening to this podcast know about Liz's own history. And, you know, she had her children kidnapped and taken out of the country. And it was quite an issue getting them back. You can talk about that much more than I will. But I can tell you that when we finally did get those children back, who were frankly pretty damaged from the process, from the right. that they had been through. My husband, Hank Rosenthal, my late husband, in a very real way became kind of a surrogate parent to those kids. Yeah. Fed them, <laughs> entertained them, <laughs> uh, coached them in being a uh, appropriately obnoxious kids on occasion. It was really fun. Taught them how to lie at poker and win. (laughs) Remember, he taught them how to play poker at young ages and how to lie with a straight face. (laughs) Those are very important skills. (laughs) Well, I miss him. And you know, it seems like yesterday that he's been gone 19 years. We miss him too. All you have to do is mention his name and watch the girl's eyes uh, fill with tears. So Oh, I love you, my friend. And thank you so much for being yourself and for sharing this time and for all of the amazing things, the things you've inspired and done. I really, really appreciate it. You've made Women's History Month all the more beautiful. And stay right there while I shut this down. I'm going to stop recording. So that, my friends, was Heather Flynn who was former executive director of Abused Women's Aid in Crisis, where I worked. And if you've ever read my book, here's the advanced reader copy back in the day, Pieces of Me Rescuing My Kidnapped Daughters. If you're on YouTube, I'm holding it up. But you'll know from reading the book that she played a phenomenal role in the recovery of my abducted children. And I think the reason it was so important to her and to my coworkers was we were working with families who were experiencing violence in the home and an inordinate amount of coercive control. I was working there as a survivor of domestic abuse who'd put her life back together and foreseeably, I was in my 20s then, had nothing but the world, you know, 
I had the world by the tail and was looking toward a bright future. And then four years after I left my husband, he punished both me and my children by taking the kids and leaving the country. And if you've ever had to deal with government, you know that dealing with your own government can be difficult enough, much less governments in between. So this was a case that spanned two years, had to work with attorneys in Greece and federal government and local state government and city government. And it was a hot mess. And having someone who does color outside of the lines and who does want to hold a system accountable and who believes that it's important for people to be included, to have equal access to safety, to laws, to have equal access to education, all of that was nothing but an asset. And so I'm so glad she was guest and anyone who is 80, turning 80 years old and is going to spend the birth date walking hundreds of miles on the El Camino by herself, someone to celebrate. So thanks for being here. Feel free to share the episode. Hope the sound went well, because I know that uh, the microphone on her end was not, at least I had a hard time hearing it. So I'm hoping in the editing that it all sounds perfect. Thanks again. Find the women in your life that you want to celebrate and be sure and let them know that they had a positive impact on you. I will see you next week for more great things. Thanks for being here. I hope you've enjoyed this week's show. Thank you for listening. If you have enjoyed it, feel free to leave a review. And if you've really, really enjoyed it, go ahead and subscribe and I'll see you next week proud member of the Podnougan Network.